I love summertime. I love the fact you get to wear, as we used to say back in the day, short pants, flip-flops, whatever. For a kid, it's hard to beat summertime because there's, there's no school. You're doing all these other kinds of things that are fun to do. It makes you free in some ways. Chapter 7 in the book Known that Ruth and I wrote some years back talks about where does, where does one's story start? Everyone's story has a starting place. And where it starts, of course, is now a place of memory for us. Somebody asked me what my earliest memory was or is, and I would have to say um, it would be June 10th, 1945, when I was a couple months past three years old. I said, how do you know that? How does that work? Well, my parents, who had lived in Oakland, California, where I was brought up for those first three years, went overseas as missionary educators at the end of World War II. And we were in New York City on June 10th, 1945. And we've just come through this weekend called Memorial Day weekend, where we hold in memory those who have given the last full measure of devotion for the sake of the nation. And I find it interesting, uh, that might not even be the right word, for me that my earliest memory had some military connotation in the sense of marching bands and soldiers and all of that. June 10th, 1945 was the largest parade, I believe this is accurate, that New York City has ever seen. Millions of people, literally, on the streets as this parade wound through all of the boroughs of New York. And it was because a man representing the war effort, if you will, was coming home from Europe. His name was Dwight David Eisenhower. And seven years later, he would be elected president of the United States. I'm a three-year-old kid with my parents on Fifth Avenue in New York as they honor him. Just weeks before, uh, Nazi Germany had surrendered. And some weeks later... Uh, the Japanese would surrender in Tokyo Bay, but he came home uh, as a victor, representing that victory. And coming down Fifth Avenue, standing up in the back of the car, waving his hands with a V for victory, he represented for many in the world at that time what it meant for victory of good over evil. And it's interesting for me that that's one of my earliest memories because it had such a power for a little guy. And I'm sort of looking between people's knees, as it were. My dad had to lift me up so I could see. But your starting place for story is your earliest memory. And that's why the challenge is when folks get dementia or Alzheimer, when the memory goes away, it takes relationships away as well. But that's a story for another day. Let's jump into the chapter called Your Starting Place. Indeed, our story is finally all any of us owns. Because, as I once told my grandson, a story has only one master. Frank Delaney, Ireland.
Earliest memories are the starting place for every relationship we will ever have. The bassoon bellow from high above the waterline was unforgettable. The MS Gripsholm sounded her whistle as she backed out of her berth in Jersey City Harbor en route to the Mediterranean. It was September of 1945, and I was three years old. That's one of my first memories. Each person's story has a beginning, and it's found in first memories. Just the size of the world sets it up. When we're small, all things are huge and every adult a giant. First impressions are the order of the day as we grow up. Life is a series of firsts. A first ball game, a first day of school, a first friend, a first house, a first sibling, a first broken bone, a first airplane ride. It goes on and on. Our early years are the first chapters of our biographies. Dr. Dan Allender, in his insightful book, To Be Told, God Invites You to Co-Author Your Future, explains why our personal stories are the main building blocks for friendship. He says that the telling and writing of your own story is critical to understanding your entire life. Most of us have spent more time studying a map to avoid getting lost on a trip than we have studying our life so we'll know how to proceed into the future. Our story is truer than any other reality we know. When I study and understand my life story, I can then join God as a co-author. Who am I and where was I are the same question. I don't know when I first grappled with the core question, who am I? What I do know is that I've asked it lots of times since then, and I know that it's connected to another question. Where do I come from? They are two sides of the same coin. Where I come from is a huge part of who I am. Ask any Texan or Irishman, any Chinese business person or Armenian farmer. Ask an only child or someone with eight siblings. Where I come from really influences how I see myself. Think of the stories you pay money to see. The great stories of stage and screen are centered in a where. From Les Miserables to West Side Story, from Schindler's List to Hamilton, the geographic roots of the lead character's life set the stage for everything that follows. Narrative always starts with a where. God gives Adam and Eve a where at the start of the grand story. It is a garden called Eden, and their job is to be horticulturalists. The only exception was a single tree in the middle of the garden. The command was simple, don't eat from it. They thought a tiny bite wouldn't hurt, and there you go. Knowledge dawns, and the great alone begins to nibble at them. And then the God who has designed them for relationship comes for a visit. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was uh, naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve have crossed the line and know it. Seeing they are naked, they run for cover behind a tree like children putting a blanket over their heads, thinking the parent cannot see. God is looking. Adam and Eve are hiding. Really? This is God for Pete's sake. And with a rhetorical question, God calls Adam out. Where are you? The question needs reflection, not a response. He knows very well where Adam is. It's Adam who doesn't know where he is. Adam and Eve's disobedience disorients their lives and muddies their identity. It costs them the where that makes sense of things. 
Knowing your where is an organizing piece of your life. It is essential to your story. The simple practice of asking the where questions about your own story is the seedbed for future friendship. Coming back to Alex Haley's story for a moment, there is a scene from the original Roots miniseries that sticks with me to this day. Kunta Kinte has a daughter named Kizzy, who is courted by an American-born slave named Sam. Ultimately, she decides not to marry him. When asked why she made that decision, her answer reflects a practical wisdom that went something like this. Sam ain't American. He don't know Africa. He can't understand Africa. And if you don't know where you comes from, you can't know where you're going. When I heard those words, it was a moment. It was so counterintuitive that it felt like the Bible. Simply put, if you want to go forward, you need to glance in the rearview mirror. Looking back to move forward. Let's look at the where of our lives. Where we come from experientially really shapes us. And part of that is the where of the geography and the cultures we come from. Ruth and I come from neighboring but different ethnic roots. She is French, English, German, and Scots-Irish. I am German and Scots-Irish. Her people came to Virginia and North Carolina and ended up in California. My people came to Michigan and Kansas and ended up in California. It is in those facts that she and I find our place. Ruth and I took a trip to the British Isles in 1992 to check out our roots. To be clear, checking out roots is often what people do when they've traveled a bunch of times around the sun and have more years behind them than ahead of them. Though we may not always recognize it, I believe we intuitively want to know our historical where, no matter what our age. On that trip, we discovered a delightful thing. The challenge in our search had been where to start on the ground. Our ancestors left their countries of origin in the 1700s and 1800s, and to their families and friends, they might as well have fallen off the face of the earth because they were illiterate and couldn't ride home. So two centuries later, Ruth and I were there on a hunt for connections. Google and Ancestry.com didn't exist back then, so we had gone to the Sutro Library in San Francisco and the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to research the country of Ruth's family origins. Scotland it was. With that information in hand, we headed out to see if we could find the people from our past. How do you do that in a practical way? Well, we had a crazy idea. It was a thought that no self-respecting young person would ever think of, we've been told. With a local phone book in hand, we decided to look up someone with Ruth's family name. Then we cold-called that number to see what would happen. The delightful thing we discovered was this. The family name worked like magic. We could pick any Blakely out of the book and, upon calling, be invited to lunch or tea. What fun! We could literally eat our way across Scotland. In a village just north of Ayr on Scotland's southwest coast, I found one of those cool and quaint phone booths on a downtown corner. We had a system. Ruth found the name in the phone book, and I made the call. I was calling a Blakely, whom we had been told might have some information. When he answered, I said that we were exploring our roots and asked if he could help. Where did your people settle, he asked in a lovely Scottish burr. Uh, north of Knoxville, Tennessee, I said. Ugh, my people went to Pennsylvania, he said. 
What did they do? he asked. I think they were weavers. Ugh, my people were miners. Can you tell me anything more about them? he said. Well, I said, the records show that in 1801, two of the Blakely men got thrown out of Pawpaw Baptist Church on the banks of the Holston River for drinking and fighting. Whereupon Mr. Blakely exclaimed, Aha! I think we may be related. Geography and Friendship Places connect and define us. Geography is the study of the physical features of the earth and its atmosphere and of human activity as it affects and is affected by these, including the distribution of populations and resources, land use, and industries. Oh, to have been an explorer back in the day, what must it have been like to make a pencil sketch of a coastline from the quarterdeck of a Spanish frigate in the 1600s, or sail through what then were called the Sandwich Islands, and we know today as Hawaii? Growing up, I used to say, give me the National Geographic and the Bible, and I'm good. Those two works opened up the whole universe to my young dreaming mind because I found where I was and who I was in both places. A friend of ours says that the grand story is about places and people. Places tell the story of people from the Garden of Eden to the heavenly city, and the place names really do focus the story, don't they? The tale is told by recounting what happened at the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, Bethlehem, Golgotha, Jerusalem, and the Damascus Road. Not long after arriving in Washington, D.C., I was thinking through how to tell the story of Jesus in this place where power and poverty live side by side. It is one of the few cities in the world designed to be the capital of a country. It really is three overlapping cities. The district is comprised of the folks who live and work within its limits and for whom it is home. Then there's the federal capital, which most of us think of when we say Washington, D.C. Finally, there's the international community, living in the embassies of more than 175 nations, many of which are clustered along the length of Massachusetts Avenue Northwest. So, how do you tell this Jesus story across all those lines of ethnicity, politics, and religion? It came to me as a study in where. I can't point to a moment, but over some days, this imaginary conversation got framed in my head. Jesus says, Foth, here's the plan. I'll leave my place, I'll come to your place, I'll take your place, then we'll go to my place. Whether your place happens to be an elegant residence on Embassy Row in DC, or a roach-infested urban project building, it makes not one whit of difference to him. Regardless of where you find yourself, God will go there to meet you every time. If the grand story is all about heaven come to earth and the creator of the universe showing up in a cradle, we should not be surprised then that a friendship might begin with a geographic question. So, where are you from originally? So that question, where is home for you originally, was not my original question when I started thinking about friendship. <laughs> I actually started asking this question. So where were you born and raised? Until one day I was in a Washington DC hotel with some friends and had a, a British friend there 
who had been a, a captain in the Coldstream Guards. Those are some of the folks who guard the Queen of England, big bearskin hats, all that stuff. And I said to my friend Anthony, so Anthony, where were you born and raised? And he's very British. And he said, Dick, I was not raised. Pigs are raised. I was brought up. So ever since then, after that, I started to say, where were you born and brought up? But more recently, I've, I think, distilled or refined it a little more to this question that we just heard in the chapter. Where is home for you originally? Each of us has a home somewhere that where we came from, correct? I mean, no matter what kind of home it was, maybe we were even raised in foster care or in an orphanage. But home for me originally sets a space and a tone for a conversation that really informs others about who we are and we learn about others and who they are from that place they began. So, catch you next time, and I look forward to that. God bless. Catch you later.